Well, if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open up to John chapter 8. We are still going through our series in the Gospel of John, and I am going to invite Caitlin to come. Oh, yeah, dedicating a child and reading the scripture and everything. Wow. Are you going to get a nap this afternoon? All right, I'll text Sheridan to make sure. All right, if you turn your attention to the reading of God's word, and then we'll pray and spend some time unpacking these verses. This is God's word from John 8, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word that's given to teach us and instruct us and correct us and ultimately, God, to bring us close into relationship with you. God, we ask today that as we wade into some very deep theological waters, God, I pray that you'd help. Well, for me, God, I pray you'd you'd guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is truthful and, and helpful, but, but God, for all of us, that you'd give us soft hearts and receptive hearts that we might see what it is that you have for us today, and we might learn, and we might grow, and we might give our worship and our attention to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, quick question, quick show of hands. How many of you here like those cold case type of TV shows? You guys know what I'm talking about? The ones where some crime happened, and then you Somebody years later comes along and has to kind of solve it. Well, there's an author. uh, His name is J. Warner Wallace. He's actually been on Dateline NBC. He's been on some different shows. He's he's relatively well-known as a cold case investigator. He's probably now about maybe mid, late 50s. But when he was in his 30s, he had a friend that kept inviting him to go to church. And the friend was, uh, I was going to say annoying, but persistent is a more gracious word. Some of us are that way with our church invitations, are we not? But he eventually went to church and he started kind of thinking about what the claims of the Bible were. And then he, he, he's kind of one of those unique cases where he approached the Bible the way that he approached his cold case homicide work that he did. You know, where you don't have, you don't have a smoking gun. You don't have a, necessarily a crime scene. You don't have DNA evidence to go through. You have to kind of go through and try to reconstruct things. And lo and behold, God was working on his heart and he became a follower of Jesus. And he wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. If any of you are interested in apologetics and that sort of work, it's, it's a pretty interesting uh, read. You can find a lot of stuff on his website for free. And as I was kind of going through his website, I, I stumbled across this quote a while back that I think really sums up what a lot of people in our culture tend to say about 
Jesus. Listen to what this guy, J. Warner Wallace, Jim, as he goes by what he wrote. He said this, as a skeptic, I was willing to accept a nice guy version of Jesus. You know, the wise sage from the past who was misunderstood and mythicized into something divine by leaders of a movement who were either mistaken or deceptive. Jesus might have been a nice guy and a great teacher, but did he ever really claim to be God? I had atheist friends who knew more about the Gospels than I did, and they said that Jesus never claimed to be God in any of the New Testament accounts. Once I began to examine the Gospels for myself, I discovered my friends were wrong. Jesus did say specifically that he was God. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus didn't use those exact words. Jesus never said, I am God. But his listeners sure understood what he meant. And that's what this passage is really getting at today. This is one of those passages where you don't see the words, I am God. But you are going to see a very heated exchange between Jesus and a group of religious leaders who sure knew what he meant. Now listen, this is going to take us through some deep theological waters. I only have two and a half hours. I need to go quickly here. So you guys got Mother's Day dinners to get to tonight. So I got to move quickly here, but... But I want to set out some goals. Number one, I want to make sure that we really understand what the Bible says. I want, to, I want to go through these words again, kind of slowly and carefully, and make sure that we really are hearing what Jesus is claiming. The second thing is I want us to understand how Christians have wrestled with these thoughts and with these ideas really for centuries, for, for millennia now at this point, that there are very smart, wise, godly men and women who have gone before us that have spent time thinking, what, what in the world does it mean when Jesus says these things? And then number three, I want to, for those of you who are Christians, I want to hopefully instill in you a sense of confidence that you can share these ideas and these truths truths with somebody who's yet to believe in Jesus. You don't need to be a PhD. You don't need to have gone to seminary. You don't need to have, uh, you know, a, a, a set of credentials and degrees. You simply need to know what it is that Jesus said and the ability to be able to communicate. So those are the goals that I have for today. We'll see how well I can do, but my hope and my prayer is that each of us would walk away with something today. Now, I'll remind you of the context. John chapter 7, John chapter 8, these last couple of chapters, there's a big feast going on in Jerusalem. Big festival, big crowds. Everybody's there. And Jesus has gotten into a bit of a debate with these religious leaders. Sometimes you see them called the Jews. John says the Jews in his writing. What he means is this particular group of leaders that were representative of the Jewish religious establishment. And the conversation went a little something like this over the last couple chapters. You know, Jesus says something like, hey, you, you come to me, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And they said, well, we have been never slaves. We don't need to be set free. We're children of Abraham. And Jesus goes, well, no, actually your, your actions show that you're not Abraham's children. You're actually children of your dad, the devil. And then they say, we would like to kill you now. And then that's where we pick up in verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's hilarious, right? Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't you an insane person with a demon? And also your, you know, your background and heritage is suspect, right? Like, wouldn't that be correct? Like, it sounds so diplomatic. It's deeply insulting. The Samaritans were a group of people who were, you, you could use the terminology uh, like a mixed race group of people. It was a group of people that were made up of those Israelites that were left 
when the Assyrians took them into exile, but then the Assyrians also sent people back in intentionally to uh, interpopulate with them. And so this group of people known as the Samaritans, the Jews especially, did not like them and looked at them as half-breeds. And what they're, they're using that as an insult to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you don't even know who your daddy is because your mom got pregnant when she was a teenager. And they're using that as an insult. You're, you can't talk to us about paternity. You're a Samaritan and you're crazy. You have a demon. It's very subtle. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Now, I just simply want to point out to you from those verses, did you see the way that Jesus talked about his father in one way and then talked about himself? There's a distinction there. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What a claim. Like, what's the old saying? You know, besides taxes, the only other certain thing in life is death. And here Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, if you accept my teaching, if you believe in my claims, you put your trust in me, death will have no power over you. Friends, this is where those, one of those places where when you're, when you're reading through the Bible and people say, oh yes, Jesus was a good moral teacher. Like either he's, either he's saying something much bigger than just a moral teacher would say, or else he is, he is a lunatic. He does have a demon. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. (laughs) So we see which side of the fence they landed on. Abraham died. Like our father, remember father Abraham? And and so did the prophets. All these, all these great guys, Moses and David and Solomon and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, all these great people who went before us, they all died. How is it that you say, if anyone keeps my word... He will not taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? See, again, Jesus' first hearers got it. They didn't try to reduce his claims down to, oh, well, thank you for your insightful philosophical musings. They're like, you are crazy. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing, but it is my father who glorifies me. Okay, there's distinction there again. My father glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. We already got into this a few weeks ago. The, my father uh, glorifies me. I won't, I won't re- dig too deeply into that, but you have not known him. You say, you know him, but you don't know him. You don't actually love God. You don't actually worship God. You say you do, but you don't. If I were to say, this is also funny. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. <laughs> But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, verse 56, rejoiced that he would see my day and he was glad. Now, let's just pause for a moment. The exact chronology is a little bit hard to nail down, but Abraham lived, you know, some couple thousand years before Jesus did. Abraham, just again, now listen to that. Her father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Jesus began his earthly ministry somewhere around 30 years old, 30, 32, 35, somewhere somewhere in that range here. Not 50, 
And oh, by the way, not a couple thousand. And you have seen Abraham? Like, oh, did you, you chat with your buddy Abraham? You're like, is, is that he was really excited when you started your ministry? <sighs> Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. That is the behavior of angry people. (laughs) That is also, by the way, the behavior of people who take the Bible seriously because in Leviticus 24, it says if anyone blasphemes the name of the Lord, they are to be put to death. That is a capital offense. So they're following what the scripture says. They picked up stones to throw at him, but (laughs) Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Okay, this happens a number of times in the gospels and it is one of my great like first questions that I asked Jesus someday in eternity, like how did this keep happening? They want to kill you, but Jesus escaped and went away. Like in my imagination, it looks something like in the movie, the matrix when he like freezes everybody. And then he kind of just like walks through, right? Like it's, it's kind of like that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Jesus is like, Oh, you know, before Abraham, Hey, look over there. And then just like runs. That's what I would do. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But we do know that Jesus knows his time to die has not yet come. Jesus is in charge of when Jesus will die. But look at what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was. So here in this claim is some sort of claim to a longer realm of existence than his 30-ish earthly years would show. So you can see that, right? But even more striking are the words that follow that. Not before Abraham was, I was. Not I have existed before Abraham. Before Abraham existed, what does he say, church? I am, which is the divine name of God. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, this, the exodus period of time, the most foundational moment of redemption in the history of the people of God, Moses says, okay, I'm, I'm nervous, I'm scared, I'll go, I'll do this. Uh, who should I say sent me? All the gods have a name, you know, the sun god and Ra and the Pharaoh and all the names of the gods. Well, which, which god is, is sending me? And do you know what God says? God says, look, I am who I am. Just tell them the, the I am sent you oh, that's on a little bit of a different level. Not the God of the sun, not the God of the stars, not the God of wheat, not the God of wine, not the God of war, not the God of love, just the God who is. I am sent you. And so when Jesus invokes here the divine name, it is unquestionable that his first hearers heard that as I am on equivalent footing of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were ready to kill him. Now, what do we do with this? Because what this does is essentially kind of peels the lid off of a Pandora's box of questions that start to come up. How are we to understand this? How are we supposed to understand this in light of other things that the Bible teaches? And how, how can Jesus say that, that he existed before Abraham and all this stuff? So, so let's just do this. I want to share with you four foundational truths that this leads 
Christians, historic Orthodox Christians, people who have wrestled with these questions for centuries to look at the Bible, to look at the claims of Jesus, to look at the claims of the earliest followers of Jesus and try to make some sense of what's being said here. The first one is is simple. This one's not particularly controversial. There is only one God. There is only one God. And even our Jewish friends and neighbors and even our Muslim friends and neighbors would agree with that in principle. There's only one God, contrary to what many of the people throughout history have observed, that there's all these different powerful phenomena and and wind and rain and the ocean and the land and the sun. There are not separate gods tied to each of those things. There is one God who is over all and who rules over all. Deuteronomy 6.4 very early. Again, this is after God's freed the people out of slavery. He appears to them and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You worship him alone with all your heart and your soul and your strength. There's just one God. There's a scholar named Richard Bauckham, and I read this article a few years ago. I pulled it back out this week because he has some really interesting things to say. If you, if you were to read the entire Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, you would see this God, this this one true God is characterized in a few ways. First of all, this God alone is the creator. He created everything. And this God alone is the ruler. He rules. He's in charge of everything. That that the the scriptures consistently refer to this God as, as being known as creator and ruler. He's known through his story. That he tells a story, a story of redemption, a story of love for his people. And that at the end of the story, this God alone will get glory. He's also known by this unique name of of Yahweh, this I am name, which is, by the way, so sacred that that, um, many of our our Jewish friends and colleagues won't even say that because in an effort to not dishonor the name of God, they replace it with Adonai. If you guys remember when when Rabbi Matt, our friend from down the road, came and, and preached here a few months ago, when he led the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, instead of saying the name Yahweh, which is there, he said Adonai. God alone will get glory at the end of the story. His unique name is Yahweh. Only God may be worshipped and God alone is self-existent and eternal. So that's what we're talking about. There is only one God. Okay, so are you saying that Jesus is claiming to be that? Yes. Jesus is this one true God. Before Abraham was, I am. Look at, look at, look at, this, look at this list again. Look at this list again. Jesus... All these different claims from Jesus himself, as well as from the earliest Christians. Can you go to two slides forward here, please? The, 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 the idea of Jesus as the creator, John 1, 3, among many other verses. And by the way, there is a lot of notes, a lot of verses, a lot of stuff. Unless you really like loosened up your note-taking wrist this morning, you probably won't be able to keep up. As always, you can send me an email, shane at soundcitybiblechurch.com. Would love to, I still think that joke's funny. Or... You can download these sermon notes off the website. We'd love to have you if you want to dig in and dive in. I'm going to move quickly, but I want to show you that Jesus is identified with all of these things about Yahweh. Jesus is the creator, John 1. Jesus rules over all things in Colossians 1. Jesus is known through his story in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I told you of first importance. He was born to the Virgin Mary and he lived and he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Like there's this story about Jesus. That's how he's known. Jesus will get the glory at the end of the story. And then Jesus is identified as Yahweh. I want to take a moment on this because, again, this, this next slide is even smaller with more notes on it. There's all of these phrases that I compiled for this, from this, this list that I've, I've held on to for years. All of these phrases 
that are used almost the exact same verbatim in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament Greek scriptures. In the Old Testament, they are exclusively used about Yahweh. In the New Testament, they are used about Jesus. Like, like every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that in the Old Testament, it says that Yahweh is Lord. In the New Testament, it says that Jesus is Lord. So again, Jesus never stood up and in plain, flat, boring, I am God. But boy, did he ever claim to be God. And boy, did his earliest followers claim to be God. He's identified with Yahweh. Jesus is to be worshipped. In Luke 24, people, would, people bowed down and worshipped Jesus. You don't worship anyone other than God. And Jesus is self-existent and eternal. So, there's only one God, and Jesus is claiming to be this God. Well, that you have to wrestle with. Okay, but there was all this language about the Father, and then him calling himself the Son. So, is this just like a show that Jesus is putting on? Is he just pretending for us? Or is there some sort of distinction? Is he really equal with the father? Is he like a lower class, like sub God? Like how does that work? And boy, we, we as a, a Christian family, we spent a few centuries really wrestling with that. Here's, here's what I will say. If I had to sum it up in one sentence, we have to say something like the father and the son are equal and yet distinct. The Father and the Son are equal and yet distinct. Did you notice, just in the Gospel of John, Jesus says all these things. He says, I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you knew my Father, you would know me. If you loved me, you would love the Father. There's all of this language of equivalence. Before Abraham was, I am. That's an equivalence statement. But did you notice all the language of distinction, right? Even going back in John, he says, my father sent me, or I'm going to return to my father. He says, I only do the will of my father. So just within the gospel of John, not counting all these other books in the New Testament, there's all this, this, this pull that pulls us towards the sameness. But then there's all this language that says there's a, there's a distinction, it's not just that God is kind of putting on different hats. One day he's pretending to be the father. One day he's acting out the role of the son. The next day we could throw the Holy Spirit in there, get the full Trinity involved. I'm going to keep mostly to the, just the comments about the father and the son for today. But it's not like that. There's, really, there's more distinction than that. There really are different persons, if we can use that language. And the, man, the earliest church fathers really wrestled with like, how do we find language to even express what this God is like? But then it's not like there's a, a, a senior God and then like a junior management God and then like, a, like an errand boy God that goes and does all this stuff. Like, no, it really like equal, equivalent. Again, these early church fathers and theologians, they, they landed on the language of, of essence, They're of the same essence. They're of the same substance. I I think if we were translating it today, it's the same God stuff. Whatever that God stuff is, they're the same, but they're distinct. And then you're sitting there like, well, how in the world does that work? To which I say, we don't know because God is beyond our comprehension. It's not a cop-out 
St. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages went to great lengths philosophically to prove that God is beyond our understanding. Once we, as finite created beings, could claim to fully understand God, we have now no longer described the being who is God. He is ultimately beyond our understanding. But what we can know, because what Jesus has said is that, man, he's, he's equal to the Father, and he's distinct from the Father. And the same is true about the Holy Spirit, but that's another sermon for another time. Okay, so he's, he's God then. How, well, well, what about his whole human thing? What about the body? What about, I mean, I thought we read that, that you know, Jesus got tired and thirsty and sleepy and yeah, which leads us to another thing that, that we've had to wrestle with is he's fully human and yet he's also fully divine. Well, is he like half man, half God? No, he's like fully man and fully God. And then the math whiz is out there, but that's like 200%. And that's, that's literally not what percent means. It just means a hundred. Quit saying 110%. It's mathematically impossible. We're like, be quiet nerds. And so... Jesus is both human and divine. He is uniquely presented as human, particularly in the Gospel of John. We see some of, John, of Jesus' most human moments. He's thirsty. He's tired. In, in a few chapters, we get to the death of Lazarus. He weeps for his friend, even though, I mean, wouldn't you think he knows he's going to raise him from the dead? He's very human. He's, he's fully human. He's, he's been made like us in every way, and yet at the same time, he is fully God. And some people would say, well, no, he must, he must be like, God, but like pretending to be a human. Like he just put on a flesh, you know, he put on a flesh suit, a body thing, and like, you know, like an alien inhabiting him. It's like, no. John 1 says the word became flesh, not the word dressed up in flesh. The word became flesh. Others would say, well, maybe he's, maybe he's not fully God. Again, maybe he's like a, like a junior God. No, that's called Arianism. That's an ancient heresy that's been around since the, really since the, like the Council of Nicaea, the 300s. Today, that same belief is actually called Jehovah's Witness. That belief that Jesus is a sub-God. And if you look at their translation of John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, or the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, instead of just what the text says, the Word was God. Some of these things have been around for centuries, for almost millennia now. Other people are like, well, maybe some days he's God and other days he's human. And when he's walking on water, obviously he's God. And when he's, you know, tired and taking a nap, he's human. Like you can separate his humanity, his divinity. No, that's cold. You guessed it, Nestorianism. Good job. Give yourself a gold star, right? Like you can't rip apart God, Jesus, his humanity, his divinity. He is all the time fully, holy, both. Now here's where some of you might be at this moment, Okay. Here's where some of you might be at this moment. You might be tempted to think, don't say it out loud if you're thinking this, but you might be thinking something like, what's the big deal? If you say that, it will hurt my feelings and I won't be able to love my wife well on Mother's Day this afternoon. So don't say it out loud. But I'm just, human nature being what it is, there's at least somebody here who's like, okay, calm down. Like, cool your jets, bud. What's the big deal? Okay, so he's God and man. What, right? <laughs> okay. I'm, thank you for bringing that up. Let me address that for a moment. Second <laughs> Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is what? Profitable or useful or beneficial, depending on the translation that you use. So when God gives us truths in his word, 
It's not merely abstract truth for the sake of abstract truth. It's actually there for our benefit. So I will say to you, even if you and I might not immediately be able to grapple with what the significance is, I'm asking you to fight against anything that would say it's not significant because God doesn't waste his breath. He gives us that which is useful. I'll be honest, if you, if you struggle to connect the dots on its usefulness, that has much more to say about maybe my ability as a communicator or it might have more to say with your own just state of mind or state of heart than it does about God. God doesn't waste words. He gives us that which is useful, profitable, beneficial. Now, I think we can see a few things from this, from these Christian beliefs, from, from Jesus opening up Pandora's box by saying, you know, before Abraham was, I am. I think we can see a few things and I want to share them with you briefly. But the first one is this. Jesus made claims that we need to carefully listen to. Okay? Um, Jesus said all sorts of things, quote unquote, said that he didn't really say. And there's a lot of things about Jesus that he did say that are completely ignored and completely left out. Now, it's one thing to say that somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, who's not a Christian, let's, they misrepresented Jesus. That's, that's understandable. People who don't follow Jesus, who don't study the word of God, who don't know, that, you expect misunderstanding, right? But for those of you who are followers of Jesus, this is a plea and an invitation to look carefully at what Jesus actually said. I mean, Jesus made these shocking claims. Before Abraham was, I am. Whoever believes in my word will never see death. And that's just, that's just the two in this week's passage. Let's be students of the word. Let's be students of Jesus. Let's be disciples who know what he actually said. And who are able then with confidence to be able to share those with others who, who God bless them, they don't know because they haven't followed. But if you're a follower of Jesus... You're called a disciple. That's the first terminology, a disciple. To study, to learn, to know, to be able to discern right from wrong, truth from error, fact from fiction, the Jesus of the scripture, the Jesus from the eyewitnesses, or the Jesus of our own imagination. Friends, I have had this conversation at least 10 or 12 times in my life as a Christian where somebody says, oh, well, the Jesus that I worship would never, or whatever, or the Jesus I believe in would, you know, and then they they say something that's just completely out of their imagination. Let's not, be the, let's not be those types of disciples, amen? The second thing I think that we can see, though, that's really important from these truths is that if Jesus is fully human, he can fully identify with us. See, if Jesus is just pretending to be human, then he doesn't really experience the weakness and the suffering and the pain and the sorrow that we experience. If Jesus is just pretending, well, then, how do I know that he actually cares? How do I know that the, the, the writer of Hebrews, when the writer of Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who was made like us in every way, except for one, no sin, so that he will be able to sympathize with us and to care for us. Look, okay, in this story today, Jesus was misunderstood. Show of hands, you ever been misunderstood? How many of you love that experience? Okay, I'll even, I'll take it a step further. Jesus was misunderstood by leaders who were supposed to be representing God. Anybody ever had that happen to you? It's painful. I just, and at the risk of sounding defensive, church leaders are humans too. And we sin and we mess up all the time. 
But that pain and that heartache of feeling misunderstood or misjudged or misheard, Jesus gets it. He gets it more than I get it. And you take whatever sorrow, whatever pain of life you're dealing with, Jesus understands it. He, he fully understands it because he's fully human. On the other side of the coin, if Jesus is fully God, well, then he actually has the power to make good on his claims. No mere wise, sage, philosophical teacher, no mere rabbi can actually conquer death. But God can, because he's the author of life, and within him is life itself. And so if all we have is a human Jesus, well, then our hope is lost. Because we need a savior who is big enough, God-sized enough to pull us out of the mess. And then this is the last one. If Jesus is both fully God and fully man, well, then it means that his death and resurrection really mean something. Let me explain to you what I mean. Now, in this passage, the verse that struck me the hardest this last few weeks as I was preparing is, is not actually verse 58. It's actually verse 56. When Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, he saw it and was glad. Friends, that verse right there is drenched with the good news of the gospel. Here's the thing about Abraham. You guys remember the story of Abraham? God called him. We actually read that, that passage in our call to worship at the beginning of our time together. God called him, said, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. For, for any of us Gentiles here today, non-Jewish, non-physical descendants of Abraham, we're adopted into the family of God. That's good news. But do you remember what happened to Abraham? Abraham was promised this, this family, but he didn't have a son. And then Years and years and years of waiting, God miraculously provided a son, life from a womb where there should have been no life. And Abraham was very happy. And then one day the word of the Lord came to Abraham and and Lord said to Abraham, hey, I want you to take your son up to the top of the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him there for me. What did Abraham do? This is my beloved son. This is the one with whom I, I, I would... I would give myself for him. And now I hear God telling me to sacrifice him. And and Abraham takes him up on the mountain. And I'll just say this. This story is one of the most misunderstood stories, particularly by skeptics and critics of the Bible. They look at this and they say, how barbaric that God would require human sacrifice. No, the, the shocking point of this story is not that God would require human sacrifice because many, if not most of the gods in that time period in the world would require human sacrifice. Abraham isn't shocked at this point. You know when Abraham is shocked is when God says, stop, I will provide the sacrifice because all of the other gods come demanding. You give me your very best. You give me what is most treasured and what is most important to you. But the God of the Bible as revealed in Jesus says, I will give you what is my very best and what is most treasured, and that God did not withhold his only son, Jesus Christ. You know, in the story of Abraham, after God provides the sacrifice, you know what they named that place? They named it, the Lord will provide. That's the name of the mountain where Jesus was crucified. The Lord will provide. Now, how much of that looking ahead to Abraham knows? We, we don't know. 
But we do know this. He trusted in the God who provides. He looked forward to that day and he rejoiced. And here in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it's all come true. That only a human Jesus can stand in for us to to pay the penalty, the, the, the wrath that we deserve for our sin. But only a perfect and holy God can pay the infinite debt that we owe to a perfect and holy God. We need a fully human and a fully divine savior. Friends, his name is Jesus Christ. That is our hope. And that is our foundation that we stand on. If you're here today, you're not a believer in Jesus. I hope and I pray that you would take the claims of Jesus on face value is what he has said. Today, for you, it is simply to believe that he is who he says he is, that he, he died and rose again for your salvation. He offers you eternal life. I know multiple people who are facing serious health crises right now, and I can tell you with confidence, the ones who are facing it, even the possibility of death, with the most hope and the most joy are those who have placed their trust in this claim of Jesus. He who believes in my word will not taste death. Friends, if you have made that decision, if you've trusted in Jesus, you've come to faith in him, then today your call is to deepen those roots of faith and to share with more confidence and more grace and more boldness because you know more deeply who your savior is. God, I pray for us today, for those, Lord Jesus, who who you want to give faith to today. You want to open up their eyes to see who you are, open up their hearts to trust in you. God, I pray you would give them the grace and the confidence to do that. Lord God, for those who have already trusted in Jesus, I ask and I pray that you would help our roots to go deeper and our faith to be bigger because our God is bigger, not because of our own great effort, but because of who you are. And I pray now as we turn our time to this, to to worshiping you and responding to you, I pray that you would be gracious to us and we would respond with genuine hearts of thankfulness, trusting in you above all else. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Oh, all right. We're going to respond to Jesus. We're going to do so in a few ways. The first way is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest or a visitor with us, no pressure, no arm twisting. We practice giving because God is the one who provides. And would you agree that at times we tend to trust in our wallets more than we trust in the provision of God? And so this is an act of worship for us to say, the Lord will provide. And so as the scripture calls us to give generously and cheerfully, I invite you to do that. We're going to welcome our younger students class in to join us for this time of worship and response. And while they're joining us and while they're collecting the offering, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 as we enter into a time of celebrating the Lord's table. If you're a guest or a visitor with us, uh, you're welcome to join us at the table. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you've trusted in him, if, if you've yet to place your faith in Jesus, I would invite you today, give your life to him and join us at the table for the first time. And we're going to do this all together as a church family. So I'm going to invite you, if you've got the elements on your way through the doors, uh, to take those out now. And I'm going to read as we prepare this time of response. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. For as often as you do this, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, when you see that phrase, eating and drinking in a worthy manner, I've said it before, but what's helpful for me to think of is that the only way we come in an unworthy manner is coming thinking that we're worthy. (laughs) There are no perfect people here today. We all come bearing the need for God's miraculous grace in our lives. And so I invite you here as as we prepare to, to celebrate the Lord's table together, to allow God to search your heart, to offer him words and prayers of repentance. If you have your elements, I'll invite you to take this here together. Jesus, we thank you for your body, your your actual flesh and blood body, that you became human. You, You came and took on flesh to be made like us, and in so doing, to take the punishment for our sins upon yourself. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you and we worship you for your sacrifice. Friends, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And Jesus, we thank you for your blood. Your blood that was spilled for the cleansing of our sins and your blood that was spilled to give us new and eternal life. And Jesus, I pray now that as we drink of this cup, we would remember your death and we would remember your resurrection and we would believe your truths more deeply. That you are the son of God, high and lifted up, eternal of the same essence as the Father and yet distinct in the work that you do in our lives. God, Lord Jesus, we praise you. Friends, this is the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Thank you, Jesus. And we ask now that as we respond to you through singing, that you would fill our lungs with your praises and our lips with your worship that we might honor you and give you the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.